Welcome to AI Arthritis Voices 360, the podcast solving today's most pressing issues in the AI arthritis community. We invite you all to the table, where together we face the daily challenges of autoimmune and autoinflammatory arthritis. Join our fellow patient co-hosts as they lead discussions in the patient community, as well as consult with stakeholders worldwide to solve the problems that matter most. Whether you are a loved one, a professional working in the field, or a person diagnosed with an AI arthritis disease, this podcast is for you. So pull up a chair and take a seat at the table. AI Arthritis Voices 360. This is the official talk show for the International Foundation for Autoimmune Autoinflammatory Arthritis, or just AI Arthritis for short. My name is Tiffany Westrich Robertson. I'm the CEO of the organization, but also a person living with diseases, as most of the people of our leadership and our organization and the co-hosts that I have on with me today. So my diagnosis is non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis. And I'm excited, excited, excited about my co-hosts and the topic today. So let's meet those co-hosts I keep raving about. Oh, welcome back, Danielle. Thanks, Tiffany. I'm glad, glad to be back. All right. So Danielle, tell everyone a little bit about you. I'm a volunteer for AI Arthritis. I've been on leave for quite a while for pregnancy and uh, postpartum, and most recently a hip replacement. So I'm very excited to be back. I'm also on uh, the board of directors for a social justice organization called Ride the Omnibus. And I'm very excited about this topic and to be here with you guys today. Hi. And Miss Carrie. Hi, everyone. I am Carrie, as Tiffany said, um, also known as the butterfly from Float Like a Butterfly. I am a writer and patient advocate doing a lot with AI arthritis and a couple other organizations as well. And I am also a person living with a long list of these diseases too. So you had a lot of different diagnoses. So they're like, I got to be on this episode. And what is the topic and the burning question of the day? Why can't I get diagnosed? Question mark, exclamation point. So this is a topic that I can't believe we haven't actually put this one on the table yet. Uh, we've talked about other things. We've talked about the mystery patient. You know, we have sort of skirted around it, but we're getting right to the point today. And one of the things that you may or may not know about AI arthritis is everything we do at our organization, every project we bring on that we tackle is based on what patients tell us is most needed. And so we look around and we see what other resources are out there. We won't duplicate efforts. And then we figure out if there's anything missing. And we try to create innovative ways based on what patients say. And we create these resources. So they're literally patient-led resources. And we say patient-infused, pun intended, solutions. So we're going to start talking about a way that we can talk about this issue. Why can't I get diagnosed? Why can't you get diagnosed? the number one question that comes into our organization. And we represent people diagnosed like myself, Danielle, Carrie. We represent the support network, your family, your friends, your, your loved ones. But we also represent the undiagnosed. So undiagnosed, this show is for you. We are here for you because we've all been through this before. So we really just thought we would dive right in 
with patient stories. We all here have a story. You have a story. Carrie has a story. Danielle has a story. I have a story. They have multiple diagnoses. They have many stories. But the point being, it's frustrating when we don't have any answers, right? So I'm going to turn it over. Danielle, did you want to start with just a little bit of why you really wanted to be part of this episode? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So one of the first things I've noticed patients talk about when we get together is like how long it took you to get diagnosed. (laughs) And I had my very first symptom that looking back, I now know was part of my disease when I was eight years old and I wasn't diagnosed until I was 36. So that usually gets people like, what, how did that happen? And how did that happen is a story that has had a profound effect on my life, you know, being ignored and having doctors not listen to me. And by the time I actually got a diagnosis, I was in a wheelchair. So this topic is super important to me because nobody should have to wait that long. I mean, I think once I heard on the show, the average time is about 10 years or something like that. And that's way too long. You know, frankly, when you're in pain, one year is too long. Like we have to get better at this. Yeah. And some of the diseases that are more common or which we'll talk about a little bit in our breakout conversations, a little bit easier to diagnose might take less time. So for example, rheumatoid arthritis, one of the ones that have the one to three year range for diagnosis, and you'll hear people diagnosed a lot quicker with that. I'm not a medical professional, and I do want to preface that with out with all of us on the show. These are our opinions. These are our perspectives as lived experience, okay? So my theory, my perspective here is as a person originally the mystery patient, then the undifferentiated connective t- disease patient, which by the way, at the time I felt was not a diagnosis, but I know now it is a diagnosis. And then eventually rheumatoid arthritis, then changed from rheumatoid arthritis four years later to non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis because there was no such thing as my diagnosis. So it wasn't a misdiagnosis. But my point in saying that is I fell into the three year with rheumatoid arthritis, but I didn't have it. (laughs) Realistically, I don't meet the statistic, but I also point that out because it is one of the easiest diagnoses of all of our diseases. It doesn't have a stringent criteria to be diagnosed. So I'll, I'll, I'll stop there on that. And we'll revisit this topic as we move forward. But Carrie, I know we, you could probably spend the whole time talking about your diagnosis journey, <laughs> but, but we're going we're gonna to crop it a little bit. So what are the main things that you want to tell us about with this? Um, yeah, why can't I, I diagnose sore? I definitely, as soon as I saw that you were coming out with this as a topic, I jumped through my computer mm-hmm. to say, please book me on this show. Because in the super short version, it took me eight years to get an accurate diagnosis. But that includes so many years of being dismissed just because I didn't look sick and there was no need to even look any further. And then another four years of rotating diagnoses. So kind of the way, Tiffany, you had 
It was non-radiographic axial, uh, non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis. We actually thought that was one of mine too. I also didn't know at the time that undifferentiated was a real diagnosis. I thought that, and the way it was explained to me was, it means we kind of sort of know that there's something, but it hasn't yet fully developed into one of the other real diagnoses. And I went through a slew of, it kind of sort of looks like lupus, but so let's try this medication. Oh, but no, it's not. And it kind of sort of looks like RA, but it doesn't have the rheumatoid factor. It kind of sort of looks like stills. It kind of sort of looks like four years worth of what it kind of sort of looked like before we could figure out what it actually was. And of course, along that way, things got worse. Um, You know, there was a lot more damage being done, disease being progressed, and even additional conditions that kind of grew alongside it. So this is such an important topic because it really hits home so much for me, but because I know it hits home for so many people out there watching or listening. No, absolutely. I think one of the quotes that I just wrote down that you said that I think we all can relate to is things got worse. And that's such an important point as we're pulling out some important factors on the why we need to get this message out and why we need to help the undiagnosed get some answers is because there is a window of opportunity for our diseases. The American College of Rheumatology and ULAR, which is the European version of the scientific groups that determine the criteria for our diagnosis and treatment protocols and and such, they recommend treatment start six months after onset, which it's hard to even get into a rheumatologist (laughs) in six months if you're a new patient. So that alone, that's that's what we call a 360-it, where we go off and we can talk about access and, and what leads up to some of these, which we will definitely branch off into several of these topics in the future. That also assumes that you know you need to see a rheumatologist. I saw seven orthopedists before I ended up at a rheumatologist. Yes. Let's actually, let's actually break off right into that, Danielle, because when we were previewing what we were going to talk about on the show, you talked specifically about this. And I think that it leads into this bullet. We've got the window of opportunity that we're supposed to hit. And the reason why is because research shows, and we're seeing it every time we take, we go to the ACR, every time we go to ULARC, we're seeing the word remission and we're like, what? And remission is happening to the people who are getting the diagnosis early or getting the treatments early, which is why this is so important. But that's not the norm. It's not the norm. And too often we get a detour on our road. That is one of these main issues of why we're not getting diagnosed. So Danielle, why don't you talk a little bit about that? So I think that that really breaks into two parts. First of all, as a patient, you have to know that you need help. And for me, that was a huge hurdle. And, And at the beginning of my journey, I was a kid. I didn't know anything. But even if you just limit it to when I was an adult and I was going to see my own doctors, um, you only have ever existed in your body. You don't know what other people's reality is like. So I thought everybody had chronic pain. 
I thought everybody was tired all the time. I thought everybody had random fevers that popped up out of nowhere. Like I didn't know that was unusual. That was the first thing. And then when I did start asking for help, my doctors would go, oh, there's something wrong with your shoulder. Go see an orthopedist. There's something wrong with your knee. Go see an orthopedist. Nobody sent me to a rheumatologist for years and years and years. And in point of fact, when I did finally end up at a rheumatologist, it's because a radiologist came back and said, look, I pulled this patient's MRIs for the last three years, and I think this is RA. And that's when an orthopedist finally sent me to a rheumatologist. So even just recognizing that I needed to see one was a huge problem. And then the other part of it is once you know that you need to see a doctor and you're sitting in front of one, getting them to listen to you can be a huge problem. You know, most of the people who take a long time to get diagnosed, like you guys, have seronegative versions of things. And I know we're going to talk about blood work here in a bit. I, that wasn't me. When they did finally test my blood, I had rheumatoid factor positive. I was ACPA positive. I mean, my blood work was screaming, this person has a rheumatic disease, but nobody ever tested it that whole time. So we know that some members of the medical community have bias that they're not aware of, and they tend to downplay women's pain. And like 90% of people with rheumatic disease are women. They tend to downplay pain from people of color. They tend to downplay pain from children. And when I first started saying, I don't think I can walk if you don't do something about my knees, I was 14. I was, and to me now, this is crazy, but I was given prescription strength arthritis medicine. It was called Vioxx. It's not on the market anymore. When I was 14 years old, but nobody thought maybe we should test her blood work. <laughs> like it's weird for a kid to have this much pain, but I think they gave me that script to shut me up because they thought that I was making it up or they thought I was exaggerating it or something like that. So getting a doctor to listen to you can be a huge hurdle. If anybody had bothered to order a test, they would have found it right away because it wasn't hiding. But, you know, nobody yeah. did. And the other thing that I heard a lot of was doctors who wanted to put stipulations on treatment or even on investigations. So they would tell me things like, well, I want you to try a vegan diet and then come back and see me if it doesn't go away. Um, I think you might have food allergies. Let's try elimination diet and then come back and see me if it doesn't go away. Probably you need to exercise more. I even had one guy tell me that women's anatomy was more prone to muscular dysfunction and I should try yoga and then come back and see me if it doesn't go away. As my disease progressed and I became less and less mobile, then it started being about my weight. Well, lose 10 pounds and then come back if you're still hurting. You know, none of that should have ever happened. The minute I showed up in their office and said, I am 16 years old, I'm 23 years old, I'm 31 years old, and I am in pain all the time, they should have ordered tests, they should have ordered imaging. You know, we shouldn't have to beg for someone's attention. Harry, you're, you're, I could just see it. You're You're like, <laughs> ah, I go for it. <laughs> so much of everything that you said, Danielle, I just feel so much. And so I want to start with that first thing of 
we have to know that we even need help and how much we don't realize is actually a problem. Because now I said earlier, it took me eight years to get an accurate diagnosis. That's eight years from when I started trying to get one. Eight years from when I said, hey, I think there's something wrong. We really need to look at this. But when I think back, you know, and I've, I've talked about this before, you know, I used to say I always had a bunch of what I called random achy pains. They didn't belong to anything. They were unassociated with anything. They weren't for any reason. I just hurt in different places at different times for no reason. And I thought that was just life. I was just at an arthritis conference and I heard from so many other patients who said the same thing. They were children and they were told, oh, this is growing. Mm -hmm. You know, I was then, you know, later on, even once we got to a point where the doctors finally said, okay, yeah, maybe there is something wrong with you. They weren't very interested in finding out what. And it took until there was something completely undeniable. You know, four years of me telling them about my pain, my fatigue, my you know, struggles with dizziness, with balance, you know, all of those things, that didn't mean anything because it didn't show up on a lab report. It was only when after four years of saying, doctor, please help me to a whole lot of doctors, it was only then when my feet swelled up so big that I couldn't put shoes on that I said, look, I am not making this up. Depression didn't do this. And that's when they finally said, okay, you have some kind of arthritis. It's probably autoimmune. Here's some steroids and have a nice day. And then, you know, he had no interest in doing anything further than that. He didn't tell me how dangerous steroids could be. While they are helping with certain things, they are seriously hurting with others. I know you mentioned earlier that, you know, you just got the hip replacement. So did I just a few months ago. And the primary reason, I mean, I have, as my rheumatologist calls it, a little bit of RA. I have a little bit of Sjogren's. I have a little bit of other, you know, inflammatory things. My primary diagnosis is a rare inflammatory disease called sarcoidosis. Does also cause, you know, musculoskeletal sarcoidosis or, or sarc arthritis. But the primary reason what got so far beyond bearable was that I developed osteoarthritis and avascular necrosis. And for anyone who's not, who isn't aware, avascular necrosis is basically when your bone begins to die because it's not getting the blood or the oxygen that it needs to survive. And the reason that happens, long-term steroid use and osteoarthritis. And what's one of the big causes for osteoarthritis, well, what steroids do is they, you know, one of the side effects is excessive weight gain. I gained over a hundred pounds, but at the same time as it makes you gain weight, it also makes your bones weaker. That's mm -hmm. a really bad combination. And if I had gotten a proper diagnosis earlier, I would have gotten proper treatment earlier and as much as I love my new hip right now, I might not have needed it mm -hmm. if I was able to get diagnosed when I should have been. Absolutely. I'm looking at notes that we all take before we start and the growing pains for the kids. And, you know, we've all heard, oh, well, we talked about you must be depressed or I got 
you obviously hurt yourself at the gym because I was an athlete and I kickboxed and I played sports and even they didn't believe my inflammation for a couple reasons. Well, my blood work was negative. So we'll break out here and start talking about that. And I was very, very thin, muscular, athletic, and I knew that I couldn't, that my foot hurt inside my shoe. I knew that my foot was swollen because it, I couldn't tie my shoe. It, it wasn't fitting correctly, but visibly they weren't seeing it. Like I said, I was very, very thin and bony and it probably just looked normal, but I was telling them that I couldn't put my shoe on and that wasn't registering because I didn't have any clinical measurable presentation that they could find. And so one of the things that we will talk about in a continued conversation with this is a little preview is there's going to be a continued conversation here next month on the next continued discussion of this on our Ruby Rounds episode, where we're going to be talking to rheumatologists, bring them to the table, ask them why we don't get diagnosed and, um, and see what what they advice they can give. But one of the top reasons is your blood work looks fine. So we are going, that's going to actually be the main theme of the next show. And I want to really bring this point up because to be diagnosed with some of our diseases, including rheumatoid arthritis, you do not need positive blood work. Do not need it. So all of the people out there who are messaging arthritis or talking to each other or talking to family members or whatever, and you hear somebody say, well, the good news is I don't have RA because my blood work looked fine, is a false statement. If you take nothing from this episode today, that does not mean you don't have rheumatoid arthritis. Okay. So it can mean that you have worser disease because that is proof. Research has shown, Danielle, you mentioned you were at ACPA positive, rheumatoid factor positive. You don't need those to have rheumatoid, even though it's in the mm -hmm. name. You don't have to have those. To have, people can have rheumatoid factor positive and not have any of our diseases. It's a blood marker. In saying that people with our diseases that do have these markers have typically worse outcomes, meaning they have more aggressive disease. They might be more difficult to treat. They might have worse flares, that type of thing. And so that's also swinging back why I realized in the beginning, undifferentiated at sometimes, not always, sometimes it is a question mark, but also other times it can mean that you have milder onset, which if you snip it and you get treatment for it, that is actually could be a good thing. And my journey undifferentiated why, Carrie, I feel that I thought it was a bad thing was because they told me, similar to what you were told, I can't treat you, is what they told me, I can't treat you until I can figure out what this grows into, what this becomes, a full-fledged disease. So they were basically telling me, you don't actually have something. You have something that is not treatable. But once I got educated, I went back and realized there was treatment guidelines, not great ones, but there were guidelines that said I should have been treated with some mild disease-modifying agent. 
And I was denied that. And guess what? I got worse. Things got worse, a lot worse. And I do look back a lot today and say, I wonder if there were people like Danielle, like you, Carrie, like me, like a lot of us here at AR Threads, like the people that you were just at the conference with, Carrie, our friends, the people we talked to. If we could unite and create some kind of guide, some kind of navigation, something for these people who are coming into AI or greatness and saying, I don't have answers. We've got to start somewhere. And I feel like why not start with the people who are the experts, right? And that is us. All right, Danielle, what do you specifically still want to put on the table here as a point that we talked about that we would bring up that we haven't gotten to yet? One of the things I think it's really important for everybody who is still searching for a diagnosis to understand is that your blood work is not a blueprint to your body. It's not something that's static. It changes all the time. It is one snapshot in time. I have tracked my markers now because my rheumatologist keeps changing my diagnosis every time I turn around for several years. I have had times where my rheumatoid factor was barely positive. I've had times where it was very positive. I've had times where my ACPA was off the charts. I've had times where it was fairly moderate. If you look at SED rate, which is a sort of a generic marker that indicates how much inflammation is in your body, but a lot of doctors put a ton of weight on that. I have had times where it was normal. I have had times where it was 110 and normal is like less than 10. The pathology report that I got back that time said, you know, evaluate this patient for cancer because those levels usually indicate something really, really bad. So just because you get back negative blood work doesn't necessarily mean even that you're seronegative. It may just mean you didn't have positive markers that day. Now, obviously, if you've had multiple tests and they're still negative, that also doesn't mean that you don't have one of these diseases. But I think it's really important for everybody to know that one test doesn't prove anything and it doesn't disprove anything. My ANA, which is also a big marker that people put weight on in the rheumatology field has never been positive, not once, which always doctors look at me like, how did that happen? Because that usually turns positive before anything else. Um, But mine never did. And the other thing that I want people to remember is, and I think this is where we really need to develop some kind of guide for people is that just because your doctor tells you, well, I tested for rheumatoid arthritis or I tested for Sjogren's or whatever, you don't have it, doesn't necessarily mean that they ordered every single test that they should have. You know, I was told multiple times that, oh, well, I ordered x-rays and I didn't see anything. That means there's no damage. No, it doesn't. Because you may have damage that's only visible on an MRI at this point. One of the big symptoms of my disease is bone marrow edema. It does not show on any x-ray, but it is crippling and painful and very visible on an MRI. So we really need to be able to give patients something that they can compare to their test results, compare to their blood work and go, okay, they tested this and this and this. Oh, but they didn't test this. I need to ask about it. Or you know, I need to advocate for myself because if you think that you're going to walk into a rheumatologist's office and they're going to order everything and diagnose you on the spot, I'm really sorry, but you're 
probably not correct. That is such a relevant topic. Again, we're going to spin off on a 360 on this because this is very relevant in what's happening also in legislative and public policy and access to our treatments is biomarkers and precision medicine. And so one of the things I've been told too is you don't have this biomarker, which is a measurement of the molecules in your blood and your urine and your tissues. It's part of your DNA, your RNA. And there are some great biomarkers that can help with diagnosis. Sjogren's is one of them. I was tested for Sjogren's. I didn't have the biomarker, so I literally was dismissed. It cannot be Sjogren's. However, we know now only 60% of people living with Sjogren's have the biomarkers. So that is a great tool to help confirm some, but it does not mean that I don't have Sjogren's. And to be frank, I'm pretty sure I do. (laughs) So in saying that, it's important to understand. I love that point, Danielle. And along the biomarkers life, there's a lot of push for getting the what they call full panel access because what happens is your doctor will order one or two or a couple blood tests and will just and what could actually happen if we had access to a full panel instead of a one-off or whatever, which is only given a lot of times for money reasons because it only costs 40 in comparison to say a thousand US dollars for the insurance companies. But access to it could answer a lot of questions. A lot of questions, not only diagnosis on what is there identifying more of these biomarkers, but it also could help start matching us to treatments quicker so we don't have the trial and error, which is critical, especially for those of us who miss that window of opportunity. So that's just my own little precision medicine rant that I had to have there. And the other point I do want to bring up, two of them that you said, I want to reiterate x-rays. X-rays are diseases, unless there's something super progressive or it just went unnoticed, like you both said, I didn't realize I had onset. It takes approximately 10 years for anything to show up on an X-ray. So if you have an X-ray and they say nothing's wrong with you because that happened to me too, 30 X-rays all over my body when I had undifferentiated disease and they said, see, there's nothing wrong because nothing came back on the X-ray. It wasn't, it was only until I went to my second rheumatologist where he took an MRI and they actually found some inflammation in my wrist. And then he pulled up my x-ray from the same shot and he pointed at this little thing and he said, that little bitty thing right there, that actually is inflammation, but people don't know to look for it. That actually is something that looks like a cyst or something. Anyway, great point. Carrie, what else do you want to add? Yeah. So the thing that I think sort of builds off of what what you were both saying is, you know, and not only is it important to know what different tests mean or what they don't mean, what tests we might want to ask our doctors for, but I think something else that is just so, so, so important is actually seeing the doctor, how much the doctor actually cares to look into things how much they actually know about what's going on, how much they are willing to look further into it or learn more about it or admit that they might not know something. Wow. Because I will just say, you know, the the big difference, between I have seen a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of doctors over the past 15 years. And I <laughs> have, you know, as I said earlier, I had some who just looked at me and said, I must be depressed. 
And anybody who knows me would say that's one of the last words they would ever think, but especially not when I'm coming in saying I have pain and fatigue, et cetera. So there are some doctors who will just dismiss you outright. There are some doctors who will be content to say it's some kind of arthritis and that's, you know, that's all you need to know. And then there are doctors like my current rheumatologist who I absolutely love. I actually wrote a column about her and it was called I Fell in Love with My Doctor when she ordered 19 vials of blood on my first visit because that showed so much. You know, I don't know if it's a full panel, but I know she tested a lot. I know she tested a lot more than anybody else ever did. And one of the problems I had had early on with or not as early, but once I, in 2015, we figured out that I had this rare disease called sarcoidosis. Because it's a rare disease, most of my doctors knew nothing about it. And so that became the really easy answer to everything everything and nothing. If I said I have this new pain, oh, well, you know, it's sarcoidosis. Sarcoidosis does that. If I say I'm having this new problem, And I think it might be sarcoidosis because I've been reading up on it. A doctor who doesn't know any better says, no, I don't think so. And they actually leave it at that. Either, you know, they just dismiss it as it's sarcoidosis and you already know that. So we don't have to worry about it. Or they don't bother thinking of it and don't even consider the possibility. Either way, they're not actually looking at me. They're not actually listening to me to the things that I'm telling them, to what I am experiencing. And until I got someone who actually would do that, it was really just delay on top of delay, disease progression on top of disease progression, and missing things left and right. You know, now I am just, I'm so happy. I love this doctor. My rheumatologist now is wonderful. My orthopedic surgeon, I absolutely adore him. He's my best friend now. He's my husband's best friend now because he gave us back something that I had lost so long ago that I never should have lost in the first place. And so the thing that I, you know, I know that we can go on and you will have plenty of other conversations with doctors, about doctors, what we need and what we don't and all of that. But the one thing that I will say to every single person who is watching, who is listening, who is going to hear about this conversation later is trust your gut when it comes to your doctors. I mean, with your body, too, when you feel like something is wrong, don't let some doctor just because he has a degree on your wall try tell you that there's nothing happening. Well, you know when there's something going on. You need to keep pushing until you get the answers you deserve. And that means you might need to change to another doctor. Because without all of those proper diagnoses, proper tests, proper treatments, in addition to all the physical progression that we have, there is everything that it does to us emotionally. There's everything that it does to our family, to our coworkers, to whether or not we can work, to everyone who sees what we're going through. Some might believe the doctor and think that we're just, you know, really being melodramatic. Some might get frustrated with us about the doctor who won't listen, but it affects their lives too. And so this spirals in so many different directions and so far and so wide. And so finding the right doctor for you is just one of the most important things that you can do as you're trying to 
move forward with this. And can I just add also avoid the wrong ones. If you know someone doesn't click with you, if you know they're not listening to you, if you know that they're combative when you try to ask for things, essentially if they're not on board with shared decision making, you need to leave because the minute they diagnose you with some kind of psychological cause or they put something in there that you're drug seeking or anything like that, every doctor you have after that is going to look at you with skepticism and it can cause some very serious damage. I've seen it happen. Definitely. Great point, Danielle. Carrie, did you want to add to that? That's part of that really trusting your gut. If you go into a doctor and they don't want to listen to you, they want to dismiss you too quickly, they don't want to look at the information that you've brought with them, because it is important to bring information with you. If they are dismissive in any way, you don't owe them, oh, well, let me see them a couple more times and see maybe they'll get better. You don't owe them anything. You owe yourself the chance to get the best care and the best treatment that you can. And so you can walk out of that office in the middle of an appointment. You can make it a point to never come back again because the one who matters in all of this is you. Very well put. In saying that, we're going to start wrapping it up here and definitely a 360th that we're going to have to spin off into a conversation is when to fire your doctor, which I wrote down based on what was just said there, uh, which is something that sometimes you just need to do, especially if you're looking for a diagnosis and you're not getting any answers. It doesn't necessarily mean you may not have an AI arthritis disease, but if you do, We cannot express enough the importance of an early diagnosis, getting on the right treatment, not getting thrown steroids or getting thrown something else or going to go to a different doctor before you get to the doctor that really could diagnose you. All of these things that we sort of touched on. The other thing I just wanted to circle back quickly just to mention, Carrie, you talked about, well, it must be your sarcoidosis. And that is a very good segue into a future episode that we are going to build on whatever tool we start to create here for those undiagnosed. We're going to also build on a tool for what happens when you're, you are just diagnosed and what happens when you have a diagnosis and you're developing comorbidities because that happens way too often. It must be this, that happened. I will do my own 360 on how something that detrimental can happen because it was blamed on me having Bichette's disease when I actually had Stevens-Johnson syndrome. It almost killed me. So that is a 360 in itself and a reason why you cannot always. So we need an episode on that. We are going to wrap this conversation up here, but it's not over. This is just us putting the topic on the table. There is so much to say about this because everybody is undiagnosed before they're diagnosed. So whether you have a diagnosis or whether you're going through this, or like you said, Carrie, it affects everybody. If you're a person who went through this, I know my parents, you know, they they were so frustrated. Nobody knew what was wrong with their child. Didn't know I was very much an adult, but I'm still their baby, right? And all of the other aspects that come with this. There's so much to say. This is a huge topic. So we want to hear from you. We want to hear if you're going through this, what do you need from us? What is your story? What are your challenges right now so that we can create the best resources and the best tools? Everybody who has a diagnosis, you've been there. 
So what what do you recall? What kind of advice like Danielle's giving, like Carrie's giving, like I'm giving? What should we add to this list? We're going to have, by the time this airs, we'll at least have this laid out and organized in some of the things that we've said today. And then we'll have a form for you to submit your voice. Very important. We hope that everybody helps unite and build this tool for those who deserve a diagnosis. In saying that, I'm going to thank Danielle and Carrie for joining me. And I'm going to ask each of you to let everyone know where they can find you. So I'm going to start with Carrie. Okay. Hey, everyone. So as I said earlier, my I go by Butterfly and I have a, you can find me at Float Like a Butterfly on my, that would be my website, my Facebook page and my column at Sarcoidosis News. Or you can find me everywhere else on social media at Butterfly K. One quick note that I will make is a quick spelling note. I am from New York and I say it, I spell it the way we say it. It's like butter. So it's B-U-T-T-A-H fly. Uh, so that's float like a butterfly or at butterfly K, either one. All right. And Danielle? I would encourage everybody to check out our organization, uh, Ride the Omnibus. You can find us at omnibusride.com. Be looking probably later next year. We're going to have a documentary coming out on medical gaslighting, which is very near and dear to everybody who has struggled to get a diagnosis or to get the proper treatment because the doctor's not listening to you or because they're telling you it's in your head or whatever. I am not terribly active on social media, but I do check my email fairly regularly and it is one in 20,000 special at gmail.com. And the reason for that is because the odds of having both rheumatoid arthritis and primary biliary cholangitis, which are my two primary diseases, is about one in 20,000. Wow. All right. And you can find me on anywhere you find AI arthritis, which is IFAI arthritis on all of the social media channels, Facebook, TikTok, which I'm not really on TikTok, but we have a TikTok and Instagram and Twitter and LinkedIn. Got them all up there. You can also go to our website at AIarthritis.org. All of the episodes are on there. All of the tools we've created thus far as people living with the diseases, you find all kinds of resources there as well. While there, we always encourage you to hit the donation button because we certainly can't continue to do what we do without the support of our community. And we will have on this episode page a form so that you can share your story. We'll also be asking for this on our social media channels, so look out for those. Other than that, we encourage you so much to pull up the chair, pull up a seat at this table, because we cannot do these types of solutions without your voice. Thank you all so much. Until next time, take care. AI Arthritis Voices 360 is produced by the International Foundation for Autoimmune and Autoinflammatory Arthritis. Find us on the web at www.aiarthritis.org. Also, be sure to subscribe to this podcast and stay up to date on all the latest AI arthritis news and events. Thank you.